This is a Federal News Network podcast. To fight and win the nation's wars, the Defense Department needs the best possible armaments. The National Armaments Consortium brings together contractors, researchers, even academics in the development of new armament technologies for the military to acquire and test. Now the consortium has a new vice president of customer engagement, retired Army Brigadier General Al Abramson, who joins me now. Good to have you on. Well, thanks for having me, Tom. And you bring a long background in the Army and in the armaments area particularly. What are some of the big challenges in armaments? Because it seems like kind of a basic thing. You've got cannons and rifles and pistols and bombs that are well-understood technologies. That's a great question. And the background I bring, so I've served in the military for uh, just over 30 years. And quite recently, and quite recently is a relative term, but about four years ago, the Army made a decision to really focus in on and hone us modernizing the Army as it is today. And so if we go back a little bit, we've been fighting counterinsurgent war for 20 years, Iraq and Afghanistan. And and so those have kind of trickled away. But now we have other threats that we need to focus on. And the question is, are our troops, are our war fighters have the proper capabilities to fight that particular war, peace through strength, but fight that particular war if and when necessary in the defense of our nation? And that's really what the focus is all about. And armaments, the term, refers to give us a sense of what types of equipment and what types of technologies it actually covers. You hit the nail on the head again at the beginning. So armaments really comprises weapon systems. So a handgun is an armament. Uh, A rifle is an armament. A tank, the Abrams tank, not named after me, is an armament. So field artillery pieces are armaments. But also the munitions that go along with it field artillery munitions, small caliber, medium caliber, large caliber, those all things that make up the weapon system itself, we call armaments. And so that includes the ordnance, the actual projectile. Absolutely. Absolutely. And if you get down to the most basic level, the thing that actually causes the chemical reaction you want, either to fire a projectile or to explode, that is actually something that is not a static industry either, is it? It's not a static industry. And so I called it a very delicate ecosystem of these chemicals that our nation brings together to either provide the explosives that we want or the propellant that we need. And so those two things, propellant and explosives, are really the building blocks to creating a more capable, more lethal weapon system. It goes and then it does something that you want it to do. And if you were to increase, say, through some good chemical research and some good testing, the explosive power of a particular propellant, for example, that could, I imagine, back upstream to how you handle the system that is using the propellant because you don't want it to blow up from too much propellant. Yeah, yeah. So a great analogy If you have a basketball, I put it into a basketball. And so today's basketball, 50% propellant and 50% explosive. Well, let's just say we want to take that basketball and throw it a little bit further. And we have to increase the amount of propellant. And so now we have a little bit less space for explosive. So we've got to do something with the explosive component to make it a little bit more lethal, if you will, because what you don't want to do is if you throw that basketball a certain distance, you don't want it to be like a paintball. You still want to have the intended effect on target 
at a greater distance. So that requires some chemical equations that we need to work on. And from your experience, how much of this research is conducted by, say, in the case of the Army, Army personnel versus how much is contracted out to the research organizations or to industry? So at Picatinny, I called it the uh, Center of Excellence for Lethality. Because Picatinny, although I wore an Army uniform, it really focused on the lethality effects across the services. So there's a great bunch of folks, about 6,500 contractors, civilians, and military uniforms that work at Picatinny. But also with the NAC, there are about 950-ish industry partners that also are all focused on getting after building these greater capabilities. We're speaking with retired Army Brigadier General Al Abramson. He's now Vice President of Customer Engagement for the National Armaments Consortium. And tell us about your new job now as the Vice President of Customer Engagement. Well, yeah, thanks for that. So in my previous role as the Commanding General of Picatinny, I came across and spoke at the National Armaments Consortium General Membership Meeting. And my eyes were open to how this consortium brought all of those smart folks together, large business, small business, academia, non-traditionals coming together to collaborate together in an environment that they may not have been able to come across and speak to each other, all with a singular focus of being able to build better capabilities for our warfighters. And so being part of that effort was a great opportunity for me, and I look forward to continuing to work with them. And if you think about some of the national challenges of which there are big priorities for the federal government, cybersecurity, quantum computing is even one, satellite technology, armaments would seem kind of basic or low-tech compared to those. But in reality, I imagine you can tell me, from your point of view, does it look like some of the adversary nations are also doing research say China, which invented fireworks, we know they're ahead in quantum and they're very big in satellites and cyber. Are they also pursuing armaments and greater power there also? I would say the answer to that question is yes. And so although armaments in terms of the complexity of those different enterprises that you spoke about, each one is challenging in and of itself. And I would put that the armaments our ability to provide greater capability for the future is just as challenging, but it has different challenges, if you will. So it's just as challenging. What are the big challenges in terms of the next round, say, of armaments? Is it a chemical issue? Is it a physics issue? Or or what is it? I would say all of the above. One, I'll go back to the ecosystem of the supply chain of bringing a munition together as a very quick example. And so one of those piece parts that go into a munition, our ability to evolve it, modernize it, to ensure that it provides a greater capability for that particular weapon system is very delicate. Meaning if we don't have it, if we don't have that supply chain coming in, then it's just not going to work. On another piece, to your point about being able to create greater explosive capability at longer ranges, we've got to be able to work on that chemical equation, that chemical structure, so that we can have a smaller amount but have the same explosive component of where we want to go. I'll add one more because you talked about satellites. Our munitions today are no longer what I would call dumb, meaning we fire them from a munition or a weapon system, a field artillery round. And it was a dumb weapon, meaning it didn't have to look at satellites and know where it is in time and space. Well, I will tell you today that some of our munitions today 
Once you fire them, it's got to acquire the satellite. It's got to acquire the satellite so it knows where it is in time and space and can have an accurate targeting capability where we didn't have that 10 years ago. And maybe it's my imagination, but I thought I recall seeing somewhere a video or something on the idea that actually an individual bullet can change course and go around a corner. Or am I making that up? It depends on the size of the bullet. I'll leave it at that. So small arms, we're not quite there yet, but larger ones can change their trajectory without going too far into classifications and things. Yeah, okay, all right. That is something that's real, though, the idea of that is real. guiding something smaller and smaller as opposed to correct. You know, an intercontinental missile, which you know has a trajectory and so forth. And by the way, does armaments go up to that level, to the guided missile level of uh, weapon? So the answer to that question is yes, armaments does. So PEO, missiles in space, deals with rockets and things like that that are particularly guided. Now, your example that you use, we would call a conventional. Can a conventional munition change its trajectory? And the answer to that question is we're developing that capability as we speak. But a rocket, as you've mentioned, has always been able to do that. All right. So as the customer engagement person, point man for there for the uh, consortium, You'll be visiting, it sounds like, and dealing with the vendor base, with the supply base issues from, again, I guess looking back to the Army standpoint, but now you can see it from the vendor side. Are the supply chain issues that affect so much of industry also affecting the armaments industry? It does. And again, I go back to a very, I called it a very delicate ecosystem because it would come in from many different pipelines. And I can only imagine due to our real life situation with the COVID virus and supply chain things, it's becoming more and more increasingly challenging uh, to ensure that our industry partners, both large, small mom and pop shops, if you will, are being able to get the things that they need so they can continue to feed that pipeline of many different directions to build that weapon system and that lethal capability that our warfighters need. Well, it seems like things are improving. You can get nine millimeter rounds now for less than 50 cents a piece. So I guess that's a good trend. They were a buck, you know, a year (laughs) and a half ago. Retired Army Brigadier General Al Abramson is Vice President of Customer Engagement for the National Armaments Consortium. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. 
She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision? What are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit? And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I 
talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective about my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.